out all the games. All right, welcome back. Um, we are joined by a very special guest today, uh, Lois Ahrens. Um, Lois, why don't you give our listeners a, a brief introduction of yourself? Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, yeah, my name is Lois Ahrens. Um, I live in Western Mass. And um, in 2000, I started uh, the Real Cost of Prisons project. And uh, when I started it, I was interested in, I thought this was my naivete. I thought that if people understood the true cost, not just the dollar amount, but it's what the cost is for people of the criminal legal system and what it meant for communities and the decimation of communities, um, then that would be the thing that would um, prompt people to resist what was going on. And so uh, like almost 22 years later, um it's still a great idea it is it's it's never not going to be a great idea yeah but i mean i found out one that uh uh many people are willing to spend anything any amount to keep people locked up and uh, you know whether whether it's uh the the true cost it's been estimated by economists for is a trillion dollars a year, not just the direct costs, but all the indirect costs of years of lost lives, years of work lives, years of the uh, decimation of communities, all of what people call downstream, but is really upstream. And that those are the actual true costs. And those were the costs that I was thinking about. People always think that I'm talking about dollars, but I am talking about dollars, but that's that's definitely not, that's just one part of the equation. There's dollars and then, but there's also things that will be impossible to ever measure. Like people who, like the ancillary stuff, children of people who have been incarcerated, who then, you know, re because they don't have their parent or because they don't, you know, some, they don't, there aren't a great, there isn't a great support network in their family that they kind of get swept up and uh, don't have guidance and, you know, get lost as well. Right. There's right. Other, and, like and that trillion number that was calculated includes that, like the cost of foster care. Okay. And what happened, you know, people not being able to continue school and all of that. That's that's how that trillion number, people can Google it and see what all the different components are. But that's that was the that was the number that they was sort of like a cost of war. Overarching cost of war was done. And this was uh, the overarching cost of mass incarceration mass criminalization of communities um in in the united states so in the united states overall one trillion dollars yes 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 a lot so and when we so when we say we don't have enough money to solve x y and z problem whether it be hunger child hunger things along those lines it it seems like they that the government never looks at wasteful things like this or it would even consider mass incarceration wasteful is that is that your absolutely they don't consider it wasteful they 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 consider it you know uh, a building block of of government a building block of of uh you know keeping 
keeping us safe, keeping us protected. Uh, I mean, the idea, I think, is to try to get people to look at um, what this means, like what, you know, what these kinds of costs means and and what it is, what it is we're getting from it, you know, and and, um, I mean, uh, and so what what could be, of course, you know, for all of these, I mean, whether it's a billion dollars or billion, one point three billion that we spend here in Massachusetts, that's a lot of money. And, and if you think of what we're getting for $1.2 billion and how the extraordinary, I mean, one thing that's happened in Massachusetts is as the number of people in jails and prisons have gone down, you would think that, 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 that the amount of money that's going to them would go down too. But in fact, if you look at, you know, the amount of money that, that jails and prisons are getting compared to the the number of people incarcerated, the, that the amount of money is still going up. And so, um, I mean, I'll give you some uh, uh, idea. So right now there are about 6,000 men and women incarcerated in state prisons. And there are about 6,000 men and women incarcerated in jails. Mm-hmm. In the jails, at least 60% of those people are there pretrial. They haven't been convicted of anything, right? Right. So, and the amount of money is about evenly split this 1.2 or $1.3 billion between jails and prisons. So they're each getting about mm. 720, 750, million dollars a year now to incarcerate each one of them 6,000 people and of the jail side 60% of those 6,000 people are there pre-trial they haven't even been convicted of anything so in so like the, the 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 lowest number that they've come up with for state prisons is about $125,000 um, a person a year. In 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 jails, it's way more than that. So, like, I live in Hampshire County, right? There's mm-hmm. a jail just like there's a county jail in every county, sometimes two. Yeah. You know, if there's one for women and one for men, or you know, another another. Anyway, so my my little county has a jail. It was built for about 350 people. There are about 150 people in it right now. More than half of those people are there pre-trial. The amount of money that that jail gets to lock up about 150 or 160 people, more than half are there because they haven't been convicted, is $14 million a year. And Lois, can we just clarify that the, the 6,000 uh, and 6,000 figure, you're talking about Massachusetts itself. Yeah, yeah. yeah just yeah. Massachusetts. Yeah, absolutely. I think, Everything I'm going to talk about, I mean, unless yeah. I say otherwise, is Massachusetts. Okay. Um, so yeah, 1.3 billion or 2 billion for Massachusetts. And, and on the state, on the DOC side, the Department of Corrections side, of that 7 735 million to lock up 6,000 people. The amount of money going for programs 
is 1.9%. <laughs> but it's re but they call it rehabilitation. They literally call it rehabilitation. Corrections. Yeah, they right. call it correction. And, and, I mean, and, really. And on the, on the jail side, I mean, one thing that I think the public uh, needs to know because otherwise their only source of knowledge is TV. And according to TV, uh, the time from when a crime occurs to when there's a, a, a jury verdict is about 55 minutes. Uh, and therefore, any time that you spend in jail is measurable in minutes. But uh, someone who's spending time in jail pre-trial is not there for one day or two days or three days. They could be there. They could be, but they, they're typically there for months and sometimes even uh, uh, up to a year. Uh, and, and that time might be credited as time served if there is a conviction or they might be. Uh, uh, they might walk out as an innocent person and we're just like, oh, sorry that you lost several years or months of, excuse me, of your life. And we spent $125,000 more, that, that. more than that just to yeah. hold you when probably there was a, a cheaper and, and more convenient option for everyone. Yeah. Like uh, allowing people out, figuring out a, a pretrial system where people actually goes through some kind of assessment and then get released without bail, just like they do in, I mean, Illinois just passed this and, and other states have it, Maine has it, New Jersey has it. So that by and large, they have gotten rid of money bail. And so, I mean, that's something we tried to do here. Um, I don't know, about six years ago. Or something. Mm. There was a bill, and it, it was an okay bill, except the the thing that was bad about it um, is that they wanted pretrial services to be in probation, and a lot of us objected to that because we thought probation is used to dealing with people that are convicted, um, and these people, none of them would be convicted; they would all be there pretrial. So we were saying in other states that were doing this, there was separate pretrial services. And that's what we wanted here. The bill, of course, like every other bill, I mean, we can talk about this in terms of legislation in Massachusetts. I mean, the bill, of course, never got out of committee. I mean, we worked, everybody worked hard on it and tried to change it, but we never got it out of committee. But anyway, I mean, one thing I just want to go back and say about you saying uh, a, 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 a trial is that right now in the United States, 95% of cases are plea bargained. Right. Yes. So, so this fantasy, this is another TV fantasy or, you know, Perry Mason or whatever. I mean, this, this fantasy about people going to trial is, is that, is that it's a fantasy. Most people, you know, get a bunch of get charged by DAs or ADAs or whatever. And they're there. I mean, if you look at the amount of money that goes to um, um, DA's offices, as opposed to money going to CPCS or bar advocates, I mean, it's, it's infinitesimal. You know, you could have a DA office filled with, you know, I mean, even in my tiny county, you know, I mean, five or six assistant DAs, you know, with plenty of money to do this and plenty of money to do that. And then you see bar advocates, and what are they getting paid? $60 an hour. 
Right. I mean, in, you know, in, in you were doing some work on Springfield, the bar advocates there basically went on strike because after 100 cases, they, they couldn't they couldn't deal with it anymore. Right. They couldn't decently even try to decently represent anybody. So, of course, the amount of the amount of um, power and the amount of control over the outcome of what happens to people is situated in the DA's office, who's going to charge people and overcharge people and know that they're always going to have the plea bargain, you know, whether it's trying to bargain, you know, plea bargain against a mandatory minimum or just a plea bargain for, you know, yeah, you could go to trial and I'm going to give you keep all these charges and you could go to trial and you could get sentenced for seven years or you could take this plea and you could go to the, the county jail. Or you. Right. Yeah. So uh, you make a good point, Lois, and, and I've thought about this. If, if you knew that our government as a whole uh, failed to get convictions more than 50% of the time, I think there would be a, a tremendous backlash from the public. What are we doing? Why are we doing this? The public perceives that the prosecution, the conviction rate is pretty darn good. And as you said, 90 plus percent of cases end in plea bargain, which yeah. creates this perception that only the guilty are charged and the government does a bang up job of landing them in prison. The only problem is when you overcharge and so someone is faces maybe 20 years of incarceration or 15 years of incarceration. And then as you see with the capital uh, uh, insurrection, they might be convicted to 40 days in prison, or I think, you know, Paris Hilton spent one day in prison. That's not actually a good percentage, meaning that that makes me think the system is way weaker than it actually is. But the public is uh, lulled into a false sense that this is a pretty good conviction rate when we're actually overcharging and then taking uh, uh, or, or forcing what seems like a favorable plea bargain on a defendant who actually might have had a better chance at trial if they right. could afford it. Right. And that's that's the big if, if they could afford it, if they could afford it. And most people who are charged, which are indigent, they can't afford it, which is why they have to rely on, you know, bar advocates or CPCS to to represent them and they have to you know and they're they're there among how many other people that these attorneys are trying to represent so of course i mean it's i mean yeah it's conviction but really it's a plea bargain for a conviction and i think that is a really important distinction because people think oh yeah you know they're convicted yeah They've been overcharged. They haven't had decent representation. Not any fault even of the lawyers. Just because of the system is set up that way. I mean, one of the things, this was years ago, that um, I'm sure you know who Michelle Alexander is. She wrote the new yep. Jim Crow. She mm -hmm. wrote this uh, op-ed that was in the Times. This was, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago. Maybe it was shorter than that. I can't remember. But anyway, I mean, her, her column was, if you want to throw a monkey wrench in the criminal legal system, demand going to trial. Yeah, that would if if we could somehow get everyone who's sitting in a county jail right now, a lawyer and and 
uh, no one accepted a plea deal. Or if moving forward, there was a movement where everyone just said, no one is accepting a plea deal anymore. The criminal justice system would potentially crush itself under the weight of all of these moronic cases. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, people who are on the inside, I don't mean on the inside locked up, but I mean, people on the inside of the criminal legal system, uh, they know that. They know that. I mean, DAs know that. They know how many cases they're bringing to trial. Right. they're not and what it would mean if they meant but the thing is is that it's such a power imbalance between the power of the da and the lack of um uh good representation for everybody that's charged that it's just you know it's an impossible situation and that's why you have people sitting in jail who, who have accepted the plea right so they have a conviction and then you have all of these other people sitting in jail that can't make bail even if it's you know a thousand dollars and they can't make bail and they're sitting there and they're seeing their whole lives go down the tubes while they're sitting there right just for a thousand bucks and so we've we on this podcast talk about what happened in the drug labs and i'm sure you are you're aware of like what happened there but what we did on a deep dive was discover that the chemists um in those labs actually were rooting for da's of course and and they were all friends (laughs) and they were all friends and um the da would say hey i really need this one this guy's a scumbag i need to make sure he's in jail and then annie dukin comes right back and says boom i have the exact weight that you needed i have the exact amount and yes it is positive for drugs without even and it turns out without even testing the actual evidence absolutely as soon as i saw this story i mean as soon as i saw it i wrote and said to everybody you know i mean this is this is completely driven by da's and 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 dukin's uh desire whatever it was to uh uh please the DAs and the people that she was working with. And um, I mean, to me, that was, and I mean, of course they got off scot-free. They did. And and, and they blamed it all on her. Yeah, because they didn't want to look at the DAs. And of course so, not. Yeah, of course not. And, and she, well, like, if you really like are, guy. yeah, it, she was a fall guy. And if you really look at the case, you'll understand that all she was doing was trying to please her bosses who she knew wanted these convictions. Absolutely. So, so like you can't blame the person that's doing a good job for her bosses. You have to blame the bosses who are putting the pressure on this. Um, and, and it never happened there. And that is just one, a small one, I think a, a large one be with the amount of drug, uh, drug stuff that goes through the court. But still, it's it's just one small driver um, within the larger. But the system thing about overall. it is, is that yeah. But the thing is, I mean, that was just one way that you could look at uh, the power of DA's offices yeah. uh, to get what they want, and um, I mean, to work with the drug labs, but also just this basically unrestrained power and. Um, and basically, they're never challenged. I mean, they're elected. Nobody, I mean, it's sort of like sheriffs, you know? Yeah. I mean, they're elected. No, Once they're in there, wow, wow, wow. 
by and large, they never leave. They unless you know, like they get appointed a to be a federal judge or something. I mean, something weird happens, you know, like Rachel. Yep. But I mean, I mean, that was odd in every way anyway, you know, that she got elect ran and got elected. And then, of course, you know, now she's not there and we'll see who goes and gets her a place. But by and large, I mean, they they never leave. They don't leave. And there's never any uh, they, there's never any uh, um, any opponents. They never have any opponents. I mean, in Plymouth County now, uh, Rasan Hall's running, uh, who is a great guy, worked for the ACLU, and actually do, does have a background, I have to say, as a former prosecutor. And and so he's running, which I'm very, very happy about, in uh, Plymouth County, and, and get against an incumbent. But, I mean, it's rare, very, very rare that that happens. And on the sheriff's side, I mean, uh, the sheriff who was the sheriff of Hamden County before this current one, Ash, was there for 40 years. And in Hampshire County, the guy who was here, who was actually a good guy, Garvey, was here for like 35 years. And the only reason that there have ever been any elections in any of these counties is that these guys, and they are all guys, they're all kings of their own castle, you know, step down, they retire. Yeah. And a seat gets opened up and then, you know, there's a chance for somebody else. But right. but for both the DAs and for the sheriffs, I mean, I think people um, I started this uh, campaign uh, about sheriffs in 2016 to look at uh, how much money they were getting, who they were locking up, uh, you know, and what they do. And um and nobody, nobody know, knew anything about sheriffs. And and actually, Rasan Hall, he took that campaign and he did an equivalent one on DAs in the last election cycle. It was called What a Difference a DA Makes. Yep. And, um, but it was based on that thing that we did about sheriffs because people have no idea. For one, there's never anybody else, even on the ballot, people probably don't even bother checking their names. Yeah. You know, if they're uncontested. Yeah. And, and, and yet, you know, they're very, I mean, DAs and sheriffs, they're incredibly powerful people. Yep. Incredibly powerful people, more powerful, I mean, in a given county than any elected official. I mean, right. any like anybody in the state house or the Senate. Any yeah, Mr. Morrissey in, in Norfolk County has not been opposed for quite a while. And he was, uh, Norfolk County was one of the main drivers behind the drug lab stuff. Um, if you remember, a lot of the stuff came from Norfolk County, which is surprising because, you know, it's not Suffolk. It's not one of these big inner city ones. It's, it's more... They, they do have their te- like Quincy and stuff like that, but um, it, it was just b- very surprising. But I think to your point, the the places that are unopposed, generally, I mean that DA is going to think they can do whatever they want, right? Rightfully, and um, well, because and, uh, no oh, one's challenging them, no yeah, one's saying like, anything yeah. against it. And when they do see them, you know, they see them in the paper and they're doing something. I don't know, you know, around here, our DA for Hampshire and Franklin County is this guy, David Sullivan. And, you know, he he's loves being in the news. 
you know, and anytime there's any opportunity, uh, he's there with his, you know, picture and, and I mean, they all, I mean, all these DAs and, and also the sheriffs, you know, they all, they all get all of this training on how to spin, spin, how to spin. Yep. Go to these, I mean, sheriffs go to these conventions and they're basically, aside from whatever they do, drink and hang out, they they have all these, you know, classes on how to spin about what they do, why they need this money, who they're locking up, you know, all of that. And DAs have the equivalent. And I mean, there's a reason that they all sound the same. Right. And the, the media is very uh, compliant in this oh. in this situation. One of the things that I was surprised at, I mean, there are good, there has been, with the, with the drug lab uh, scandals that we've been covering, there have been good journalists uh, covering the issue, but Jamie, on, on, you could count them on one hand. Right. And right. you have entire organizations like the Boston Globe that in my opinion, abdicated any responsibility to uncover why, why that question doesn't is not asked why why does this happen why did why was this allowed to persist who knew about this what you know what'd you know when'd you know it all those regular questions that journalists love asking every other uh, situation somehow get turned off uh, and now we have the state police overtime situation and I'm waiting for people to realize that this is actually overtime in general for any department. Yep. Um, How about overtime for, I mean, so here are an increasing number of prison guards mm -hmm. and an increase, I mean, in the Hamden County Jail, the amount of, the amount of staff to the amount of prisoners is one to one. You know, and right. literal babysitting. That's if, what I get for my for my infants. They're they're well, they're doing maybe what babysitters do. They're watching TV. They're yeah. playing games on their phone. They're in, talking in, to whoever. Yeah. In That's sports, in sports, we call that man-to-man -man defense. That's yeah. right. I mean. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, that's what they're doing. And and I mean, just like the overtime for the state police, I hope, hope, hope at some point um, there's the equivalent kind of look at overtime for prison guards because oh, that would be lovely. The, the prison guards are, you know, I mean, they're, they're in the same kind of category as the state police. And that is they have these really powerful unions and nobody's going to come up against them and the powerful unions gave them got them fantastic contracts and you know they have to work i mean i don't know about state police but i mean prison guards they have to work so few hours that basically if they work i don't know 32 hours a week some of those some of those hours are going to be overtime wow so they're not only their set amount, which is this astronomical amount, hundred, hundred $125,000 to start. This is on the DOC side. They're getting all of this, this overtime. So they're making, you know, $200,000 basically because why? Because they're doing this tough job and they're, you know, having to rein in criminals. They're risking their lives every day, you know, like all of the hype that goes with it. Right. And so, I mean, I don't but know if you actually watched what they are doing the, yeah. the you know i mean a me driving into work i risk my life something could happen i could get in a car accident and die you know driving into work like and 
there's i mean maybe they have a higher percentage of something happening in jail with criminals but if you actually were watching what they do which i did i i was a volunteer in uh in some of the jails around massachusetts from 2010 to 2015 and i saw every day going in there literally them sitting watching youtube videos yeah and and denying people going to the bathroom anything they have to do yeah especially now there's so many of them compared to the number of people that are locked up you know i mean they have to count everybody they have to you know how four times a day five times a day so that, i mean that's a big job is count but if there are fewer if there are 160 people to count you know and you have at least 100 i don't know how many people in there working at a given time they can each count one you know right. I, mean, I mean it's so over the top that's it's, crazy it's so completely over the top and i mean i think people People don't, um, you know, know anything about it. I mean, there was, I'll tell you one story, which was a completely horrible story. Um, This guy I know was at Norfolk prison um, during COVID, during the height of COVID, where everybody was locked down. Everybody was locked down for over a year. So that meant that they were getting their food brought to their cells. Yep. And, um, And they were getting... I mean, even by prison standards, um, terrible food, like oh, really, yeah. really, really terrible food. And so uh, he, I don't know what made him start looking at this, his name is Dan Holland, what uh, start looking at, but he, there are a lot of people who are incarcerated, a lot of them are at Norfolk, that are masters at public information requests. I mean, yep. like masters. And he started filing these public information requests to get the invoices of what guards who were making, you know, this astronomical amount of money um, uh, were, were requesting for food. And they were requesting it from, quote, the inmate food account, right? Mm-hmm. Money that was to go to prisoners for food. That's where they were requesting this food and what they were requesting was like sirloin tips and um you know all of this really really and plus cases and cases of water because the food the water there is undrinkable and people have to buy water in order to drink it cases and case and say they were taking money here are these people that are making a lot of money and here they are sitting around with everybody locked down by covid and here they are basically stealing out of the inmate food account <laughs> to buy this, I mean, unbelievable, like, you know, really high-end food. saying they're giving it to the prisoners and keeping no, it. they didn't say they were giving it to oh. them. They didn't have to say anything. <laughs> they, were just, they were just buying it. They were invoicing it and buying it and bringing it in and eating it. Wow. And... and- Amazingly, right when I got all of this stuff from, it's on the real, all the invoices and everything are on the real Cusp Prisons website. Um, I got this email from this guy, Terrence Doyle, I think that's his name. It's a, was a, he's a food reporter for this magazine called Boston Eater. It's like a foodie magazine. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to know about prison food. And so um, just at the time I got all of these invoices from Dan Holland, 
And uh, so I connected the two of them, Dan Holland and this guy that works for this, you know, Boston Foodie magazine. He wrote this great article about it. I'm sure it was one of the only times that they ever had an article in this food magazine about prison food. And he, you know, exposed these this thing that was going on. But I mean, so here are these guards that are already making this huge amount of money and basically stealing from prisoners. Meanwhile, the what the prisoners get is um, bad bologna sandwiches. Right. I yeah. would say most people and would consider awful, it like deplorable. just rice, tons of rice. And, and it's, it is the worst kind of food I uh I know because I've eaten it and it was it was awful. I know there's there's something called management loaf that I've seen in some of my cases. It's it's not called management loaf. It's called um, I can't think of it. Yeah, it's like all the food that's left over, ground up and baked. Yeah, and it's uh, not not obviously. uh, It's I would say barely even edible. Yes. I mean, I remember this was years ago. I went to visit a friend of mine in um, Alderson Prison, which is in West Virginia. It's a prison, women's prison, Bureau of Prisons. And um, this was years ago when, I don't know if you can still do this, where you could go and you could actually go and um, eat with the person that you were visiting. This was way back when they were probably a tenth the number of prisoners in there that they are now. And I remember we were in this dining hall. It was just me and this friend that I was with and this woman we were visiting, a friend of mine. And uh, and we were served this food. And I went to taste it, and I, I couldn't actually eat it. And she said, oh, if you're not going to eat this, you know, like, can I have whatever you're not eating? Because of course they don't get enough food to eat, and and I just watching her eat the stuff that literally, I mean, I literally almost couldn't swallow, and I mean I did like two bites, and then she ate mine, she ate this friend of mine's, you know, and for her it was just more food, and um, I mean you know I mean the whole food thing is just. Um, Horrible. But I mean, this is an example of what went on during COVID in Massachusetts with uh, uh, prison guards basically stealing from from prisoners. Wow, just, unbelievable. So that's horror, horrifying. But uh, so the original, um, yeah, the original thing I wanted to talk about today, or or we've we've already touched on it, the the cost of prisons, obviously. But we, we're talking about you know um what like the the amount of like how does this keep going on why does the legislature seemingly not care and the the title of our podcast is called rigged because we advocate that it's a rigged system or at least the drug testing was but it it turns out the entire system is rigged for a reason right and we were talking about you know uh you had brought up some some points about who is actually representing us in the legislature do you want to go into that yeah yeah i mean one of the things that uh, is true about the massachusetts legislature and i i don't know the numbers exactly but a huge huge number of people who are legislators um i would say mostly male white legislators which is the big majority of people that are in there Mm -hmm. um 
so, but that group, especially, I don't know if it's like filtered down to women yet. I don't think so. Um, are all former prosecutors. And so they come to this, um, to the legislature with that background uh, and that, I would say, bias against uh, people that are charged with crimes. And what should happen, I mean, they are, when they were former prosecutors, they were in the position of doing just what we were doing, overcharging so that they could extract these plea bargains. That's their background. Right. And I mean, a lot of them come from, you know, I mean, the majority of legislators come from the Boston and the area around Boston. And so they come from this very insular um, white um, uh, background where they go to high school with white kids, they go to college with white kids, they go to law school with white kids. And then they graduate and they go into, and then they run, they run, they become uh, prosecutors, prosecuting probably a lot of people that aren't white. And then they go into the legislature where if you walk in there, it's like, you know, 1950. I mean, it's hard to remember that when you walk in there, that it's 2022. And who you see in the offices, you know, the secretaries, you know, with heels sitting there typing away or doing whatever they're doing, you know, in these legislative, I mean, it's a very um, surreal kind of place to be in. Right. Right. There's a, there's a there's a myth or I'll make you call it a belief before I say it's a myth. There's a belief in Massachusetts uh, among people, um, many good intention people that Massachusetts is sort of, uh, sort of a progressive island in a sea of 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 uh, dastardly other states. And uh, I, I, I'm assuming you've kept uh, uh, sort of abreast of what's going on in other states. How progressive if you were going to give like a letter grade. How progressive would you give uh, the Massachusetts legislature a grade with A being the most progressive and, and F being, uh, you know, uh, somewhere between Mississippi and Arkansas if, uh, in the 60s? Um, you know, what would you what, what, what letter grade would you give? I, I give a talk all the time. And the talk is Massachusetts is not a progressive state when it comes to the criminal legal system. That's my talk. And I give it to people, anybody that will listen, but I mean, I give it to uh, people, you know, in churches and synagogues and, um, uh, you know, anyway, people that think of themselves as progressive. And, um, And to me, the fact that, I mean, it's hard or it's difficult for people to find any other information or you know i mean it's less difficult than it used to be of course but and but people i think are in massachusetts are happy uh to have um to call themselves progressive and to think that everything's okay because they can pat themselves on the back and say it's progressive here and there's no they don't have to do anything about it. They can give themselves a pass. And so what I try to do when I give this talk is um, give them some examples. Like I'll just give you a few 
Uh, Massachusetts is the only state in the country that sentences people to 10, up to 10 years in solitary in the DDU. Massachusetts is the only state that incarcerates people under Section 35 for oh substance God. abuse. Have you never watched the that only movie? state in jails. Hampton County is, is the jail, the only jail in the country, the jail just south of me. Massachusetts, of the 6,000 or so prisoners in Massachusetts, yep. more than 1,000 of them are serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. That's the highest number percentage-wise of, of people incarcerated in the country. And people in Massachusetts are okay with doing that because what do they think? They think that we don't have the death penalty. So instead, they can give themselves a pass for not having the death penalty and sentencing people for 50 years, 60 years to what I call and what this friend of mine called slow death row. 50 years or 60 years serving life. Massachusetts has the oldest population of prisoners. Why? Because of the huge, huge, huge number of people that are serving a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. And the numbers, I mean, if in the 70s, the number of people serving life without parole was about 175 people. Now it's more than a thousand. And that's because of DAs and what they're asking for and what they get. And it's because of this mythology that somehow, it, you know, I mean, I'm not advocating for the death penalty, but that this is an alternative to the death penalty. I mean, I could go on and on and on about all of the things about Massachusetts that stand out. And that Massachusetts in 2013 or 14, I can't even remember what the date was now, um, what, uh, was the last state in the country to pass uh, a three strikes bill. And before that, it was Arizona, like 10 years before that. Massachusetts in... Uh, like 10 years ago, or no, it was in 2000, Massachusetts, uh, it was on the ballot for people in Massachusetts to vote whether to take the, way, the vote away from people who are incarcerated for felonies. And it passed by 60%. And it was the only time that anybody that uh, in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts history, that a civil right, somebody's civil rights was vo voted to be taken away from them. I mean, so when people in Massachusetts think that this is a progressive state, it is not a progressive state when it comes to the criminal legal system. I mean, there's this hugely everything about the disproportionality of people who are locked up based on race and ethnicity is huge, 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 huge. It's like forty percent is is like African American or something, yes. right? And, yeah. and what's the and what's the population? Fifteen percent. Yeah, lower. And yeah. It, it Like, and that was the real striking thing that got me, like, because you know I'm a I'm an avid avid reader, and you read like people like Dostoevsky and you know the others that say if you want to know something about your society, you have to go to the prisons, right? So you you go to the prisons, and I was doing what's have you ever heard of AVP? Yeah. 
I was doing AVP in, which is the Alternatives to Violence Project um, in Cedar Junction, where all the, all the prisoners go to get sorted. And I remember sitting in that prison, uh, waiting for the class to begin, being nervous because I, you know, had never known what it was like to be in there and thought it was just going to be a bunch of murderers coming in. And um, people, when the class began and everyone walked in, everyone was black. Everyone was black. It was insane. I'm like, holy shit. Like everything, because I, I read the new Jim Crow. I, you know, I had done all this stuff and I'm like, well, it's one thing to read it and it's another thing to live it and actually see it. And when you see it, it it just hits you in the face and it's unavoidable. Just how unfair, racist, and and just wrong this state is. And you, you had said it's the DAs. You know, while I agree with that, ultimately it's the people. In my, it, it's the people of the state that vote these things that do not... Um, pay attention to what is go- being done in their name that is really to blame, in my opinion. Well, I mean, of course, it's the people who keep voting for these people. But, right. but they don't, I mean, often people don't, I mean, just sort of saying people, I mean, or you started saying, you know, about the news and about this and about that. They're yeah. getting, they're getting like a hundred percent diet on, I mean, I, I mean, I do, I mean, I do a lot of speaking and I, my town, I mean, we have a local paper, the Daily Hampshire Gazette, and we also have the Springfield Republican. And I mean, I am a constant letter writer. Right. I do it all the time. And I do it where if I can get a column, I get a column. And, um, you know, just more words, <laughs> 700, right. 300 words. And so I, because I feel like, you know, and people always say to me, oh, yeah, you're the one that writes the letters, <laughs> you know, and I am. And I always encourage people to do it because people read them, especially local papers. People really read the people really read the letters to the editor and the columns. I mean, that's one of the things that they read the sports. Yep. And and so um, it's a really good way to communicate. I mean, as many ways as I can think of. I mean, to, I mean, I, in when uh, five years into the Real Cost of Prisons project, um, I, one of the things that I did was I made these three comic books. I don't know whether you've ever looked at them. They're on, okay, they're on the Real Cost of Prisons website, which is www.realcostofprisons.org. And uh, it says right at the top, comic books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And if you click on them, you'll see three comic books. There are PDFs of the comic books. One is on the war on drugs. One is on um, why, where prisons get built and what the um, impact is on the communities where they get put and what happens to the communities of people that are being extricated from like urban areas into rural areas and how that serves the rural areas. And the other is, uh, it's called Prisoners of a Hard Life, Women and Their Children. It's about who gets picked up and what that means. And each of, so I did these in 2005. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the time, there was not even anything called the graphic novel, let alone a comic book that these have footnotes and they have bibliographies in them, but they're very, very, very easy to read. I mean, I pegged them for like the daily news, 
Me. That's my kind of comic book, by the way, one with footnotes. <laughs> you can't have a comic book with footnotes. <laughs> yes, we can because we're making it up. But I, I, I printed one hundred thirty-five thousand of those comic books, mm -hmm. and about a hundred thousand of them were sent to prisoners, and about thirty, thirty-five thousand were sent to organizers. Um, to try to start educating people. And this was now, I mean, years ago now. I mean, yeah. some of the data in them are, are slightly, you know, off, like about crack cocaine, powder cocaine, stuff like that. But other than that, they're really not off. I mean, unfortunately, because we wrote them in 2004. Right. And But so, I mean, you know, everything that I do is to try to, um, educate people so that they they do see what's going on. And I mean, especially here in Massachusetts, where people really have this completely wrong idea about what's going on. But I want to get back to your first question, or, your, or the most recent question, which mm -hmm. was about, you know, like, what else is driving this? So it's, it's the legislators and what the background is of the legislators. It's the power of not just guards unions, but um, the police unions. Why do they wield so much power and how do they wield their power? Do you know? They have a lot of money. Mm -hmm. they, they have this, you know, they create this mythology about police and guards that they're doing, you know, they're protecting us from chaos. Right. They're protecting us from anarchy. They're protecting us from, you know, the worst things that we can possibly imagine. That's what they're, you know, wouldn't you pay somebody to protect you from the worst thing that you can imagine? Right. Yeah. Yes, you would. And that's, and that is a hundred percent the story that is around them, whether they're guards. I mean, the sheriffs have an association the, of course, I mean, of course, the police do. They have a lot of money. And the other thing is, is that like for sheriffs and I mean, and the DOC, I mean, well, especially for sheriffs, um, you know, the sheriffs are elected and the sheriffs raise money and the sheriffs spend a lot of money. If the sheriff in, in Hampshire County has $14 million, the majority, of course, goes to, to salaries. I mean, in each instance, because they're getting these crazy salaries and they're so overstaffed but they're buying food i mean not usually like state tips and you know they're buying but they're buying food for people who are incarcerated and of course for people that work there they're purchasing health care they're 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 they they all have telephone services and tablet services they're all getting kickbacks and commissions the sheriffs are from that and the doc is from that so there are all of these, um, uh, you know, companies that that they are the ones that are purchasing the the services or the actual stuff from, like you the know? telephone calls, like the yeah, telephone service. Exactly, telephones, tablets, all of that. They're the so there are a lot of people that are all invested in keeping things the way they are, because it's their bread and butter. Yeah. I, I, uh, I joke and I'm like, how many boats on Lake Winnipesaukee 
were bought with our tax dollars to, you know, fund mass incarceration. And I'm sure if someone actually took a toll of how many boats there are in New Hampshire, it would be a ton. I'm, I'm sure they're state-funded yachts up there. That That's what I call them. It's, it's unbelievable just um and, and then not only like the pensions as well right like it like when yeah. they retire they they well, are, are what 45 or 50 yeah. no, they yeah. start working at 20 yep or 21 or maybe 20 you know and they work for 25 years and then they retire at 45 and then they're part of a you know uh uh, uh association that keeps actually keeps pressuring lawmakers to keep things exactly the same. I mean, and then, I mean, you know, you also have people who are, I mean, these DAs, of course, are pressuring people. I mean, when you, I, I don't know if you've ever been at like the state house when there's um, like the sheriff's or sheriff enters to speak, you know, so whoever is an elected official at this, if, if you're testifying, they can always come out of order. Right. So let's say there are 50 people that are going to testify about something and you've been waiting, 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 waiting. And then some some elected official comes in and so they can come out of order. And it always reminds when the sheriffs come or DAs come. It's like the waters part, you know, and every everything that happens is everything but like throwing like rose petals in their path. As Our overlords are here. Our I mean, overlords are here. It's so, I mean, the, the deference that they get, yeah. it's, well, it's, there's nothing else like it. I mean, literally, there's no, I mean, in, in, when you see them in the legislature. But I mean, so it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, a lot of different elements. I mean, there was this uh, thing that I saw. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, there was a, a report that was put out by National Common Cause, and it's called um, uh, The Paid Jailer. And it just came out uh, a couple of months ago, I think in January. And so, uh, so Mass this is what it says. Massachusetts sheriffs, this was January, Massachusetts sheriffs received up to $2,686,129 in potentially conflicted donations across just 13 sheriffs campaigns. So uh, the top recipients, uh, Suffolk County's 319,000, Bristol 324, Hamden 396, Worcester five hundred four thousand, Plymouth seven hundred thirty eight thousand dollars. And when I looked at the Hamden County one, just because he's like my arch enemy, and, <laughs> and so I, I always I'm always writing about him, and I always try to find out you know these things about him. And I mean, many, many, I mean, a shocking number of the people. I mean, there's, you know, the companies and the trucks and, you know, that they buy cars and, I mean, you know, they're, they're purchasing a lot. You know, his budget for Hamden County is $77 million. So, I mean, oh my God, and that is like, that's Western Mass. So does that include, that includes Springfield though, I assume, right? It's Springfield, Springfield. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, the other counties are, you know, Berkshire, Franklin, Hampshire. So, yep. I mean, obviously we don't have, you know, we don't have big budgets, but, you know, we have the 14 million. I mean, Franklin County is about just like we are, about a hundred and something prisoners, most of them, of course, pre-trial and budgets of, I think the one in Franklin County is 18 million. Oh my. 
And you know, the, the, this no became Franklin County. I mean, you know, like they have to try to get people to lock up there. I mean, it's you know, it's it's rural. <laughs> yeah, the, the issue of sheriffs became a lot less academic to me in the summer of, of 2020, uh, in the wake of the George Floyd murder, and there were uh, uh, civil demonstrations uh, and protests popping up. And in Brookline, um, suddenly, where there was a protest uh, in, 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 uh, near City Hall, or Town Hall, rather, uh, suddenly emerging uh, out of one of the buildings was these unmarked um, uh, sort of uh, armored uh, soldiers who emerged. And nobody knew who these were. I mean, the first thought I had was these are the little green men from uh, Putin's Russia. They had no identification whatsoever. And it turns out that they were Norfolk uh, um, uh, 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 Sheriff's Office personnel who undoubtedly had, I would think, minimal training for the for this exercise, which I don't even understand what the exercise was. Was it a show of force? Was oh, this? Show of force. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that's part of the sheriff's duty was to, to make shows of force. Uh, uh, and, and, uh, and, and fortunately, nothing happened. And I, I emphasize the word fortunately, but this was a situation that was not dangerous, but was somebody basically threw, uh, it was like throwing a Molotov cocktail uh, into a peaceful demonstration. And, and luckily nothing bad happened. But that was, uh, uh, to me, uh, not only shocking that it happened, but then you start to think, well, wait a minute, were these, these weren't people who worked, who, who were like on their nine to five job at corrections because they can't leave the prison, right? Or the, the jail. So these are people who were what, off duty and they're now being paid overtime or what? And who bought the flak jackets and those shotguns that they had or it's whatever. All... And, and for what thinking, purpose? What, why you start thinking about the money. Those? You start thinking about the money that was wasted on this show of force. Yeah. And apparently it was it was all chalked up to a miscommunication that somebody gave, somebody misinterpreted, I don't know, a scratch of the nose or a pinch of the ear as the go signal. <laughs> oh my God. And these God. guys emerged from the basement. And I'm thinking that's no better. First of all, good job training guys. But second, they were just gonna sit in the basement and earn overtime just in case this was like a, like a really expensive insurance policy. So I, I don't I don't even know uh, what actually the sheriffs, um, you know, what, what, what the public perception of what the sheriffs do. But I would say that I had zero awareness before and now I'm very concerned and I feel like that concern has not permeated across the board in, in the public. It's very, very, I mean, I've been talking about sheriffs really since I started the Real Class Prison Project because uh, one of the first things I started doing or one of the first things that was started happening out here was, was that the sheriff at the time in Hamden County, Ash, uh, was trying to build a new jail for women or a jail for women. And so there were a number of us that were working to oppose it. Of course, he got the money and he built it and then he expanded it. And now it's there and there's hardly any women in it, which is good. But there's still all of these people working there still cost a ton of money. And so, um, you know, one of the that was one of the first things I started doing was like sheriffs. And I mean, that was why we did this. Uh, well, it was years later, this sheriff's education campaign to try to tell people, you know, like, okay, these people are running in your in your county and this is what they do and this is what's the power that they have and this is, you know, 
this that they're political animals. I mean, they really are political animals. As I said, they all get this training about spinning what they need and how they have to increase it, how great they are if they're dealing with women. It's like gender informed and they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart, you know, locking women up. And so, I mean, they all have this, um, they all are taught this, this same line. But like in Hamden County, the new, the guy that replaced this guy, Ash, um, who was, as I said, there for 40 years, was his like second in command. His name is Kochi. And he is, he's the only, he's the only sheriff in the country that is locking people up who are have substance use issues under section 35. He's constantly, constantly, constantly trying to get more money to expand that part of the jail. Yes. Because he has to, because he knows he sees the writing on the wall and they all see it. He is, he is doing what Michelle Alexander had said. This is, it's not going to change. It's going to evolve into jail rehab. That's what it's going to, the drug war won't end. It will evolve into jail rehab. It will be the same thing, but they'll call it something else and they'll have pretend services, but it will still be locking people in prison against their will because they are addicts. And this is, this is, you know, not any, I mean, this is exactly what he says. They're not, he's not saying that they're, I mean, they're, they've not been charged with anything. They've been sectioned under section 35. And so, I mean, so they're not in any way anything, but they're wearing, you know, jumpsuits and they're, you know, in a certain part of the jail and they're counted and they're, you know, they're, they're, they are treated like people in the jail. And I mean, he spends a huge amount of time trying to increase the amount of money. And luckily, I mean, he has gotten some money, but he has also been thwarted i mean prisoners legal services has been trying to sue to stop this for years and so far has been unsuccessful um there's a bill in the legislature ruth balzer um that has been proposed two or three sessions it's still active in the legislature now to outlaw this because it's it's really i mean an atrocity it's horrible it is and and um, and so for people that are listening, they should look and look on uh, Ruth. I don't have the number right in front of me. The 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 bill number and and contact their legislator. And I mean, it's still alive. Like there are all these bills that haven't been voted out of committee yet. And uh, it's possible, you know, that that it might succeed this go round. But I mean, it's a um, it's really a, a, you know, this is one of, I mean, to me, one of the really terrible things that makes Massachusetts, again, you know, an, an outlier. I mean, a complete outlier. I mean, Massachusetts. Yeah. I'm sorry, you you had said that um, it, that your county is the only one that does this, but is it, uh, isn't the, it's Hamden County, Hamden County, um, but isn't the, ma um, the mass act, uh, the substance, yeah, but, isn't that's there... a, but that's a state institution. This okay, is, but, the county. but they do the same, they yes. do the same yes. there. Yes. And, 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 uh, and I think it's, uh, you know, not to, uh, to dwell on the, the, the detail, the fine details here, the overall issue is, as you described, there's these buildings that, look like prisons and are prisons yeah. that have this sort of like 
imaginary line going down the middle of them where if you're on the right-hand side of the building, you're uh, uh, an inmate uh, who's uh, uh, accused of committing a crime or has committed a crime. Uh, and on the left-hand side of the building, you have a substance abuse issue, Yeah. Uh, but you look like you're on the same side of the building as the other guys. And um, you're treated like the other people. I mean, so, yes, so it's MASAC. That's a state part, you know, a state prison, basically. Yeah. It's not called a prison. It's called a well, correctional facility or something. But, yes, but in terms of jails, uh, but either either one, whether it's MASAC or whether it's Hamden County, Massachusetts, you know, statewide for the state or um, the county is still the only one that still does this. Right. That still does this. I mean, I mean, so I mean, I was going to say about sheriffs. I mean, sheriffs basically can do what they want. I mean, Kochi did this thing where. Um, he was during COVID or during the height of COVID, he was sending his deputies, you know, these same people. I mean, I just want to say that the reason you saw them all show up with flak jackets and all of that armor and all that stuff is they have that stuff. You know what I mean? It's sitting in, in their closets. They just don't get to use it. So they got to bring it out there. I mean, I mean, this happened here in Hampshire County. We had this big protest, this George Floyd protest and there was literally like a like humvees and um people from dressed in um you know state police and county police and city police i mean it's a tiny town thirty-five thousand. there were five thousand people at this demonstration it can't they, wait they can't and wait they, and they were i mean the amount of police and arms and and these you know, like big Humvees. I mean, not not tanks, but tank-looking camouflage. Look, you know, all yeah. of that was like behind the courthouse, waiting for something to happen, which never happened. But anyway, it's almost like they wanted. I mean, they want a war, and this is the problem with you know the military giving sideways. this equipment to uh, law enforcement. It's and it's the same problem with the military getting the equipment in the first place. You can't get all of this military equipment and not use it. You know, like it, it's the whole point is to is to use it if you get it. Like that's why we have all these fancy planes and all. You know, the F thirty five that costs billions of dollars, uh, trillions of dollars almost. And it's you know like things like that. If you don't use it, it's just a massive waste of money gathering dust. So you're looking for any excuse to use this stuff. And that is extremely dangerous. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, so just back to sheriffs, I mean, like he did this thing during COVID where he had these deputies going and doing senior checks, going from house to house, doing senior checks. And I mean, to me, this is not what the sheriff needs to no. be. And having these people, you know, show up in their like, you know, deputy outfits to be knocking on every door and counting who's there and seeing who's there. And but, you know, the publicity in the Republican, actually, there was an article about it in the New York Times. What a great job he was doing uh, with this, uh, you know, this wonderful senior check during COVID. And I I wrote to the reporter, Ellen Barry, her name is. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, you just really handed him this gift that will keep on giving. 
you know, this yeah. laudatory like article in the place. Times, in the New York Times, about this great yeah. sheriff in Hamden County and how he's, you know, helping seniors out. And she actually, I mean, I have to hand it to her, she was very apologetic, you know, that she said, you know, she got sent on this thing and she had to do it in short notice and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, basically this is the way it was that, and it got published. But I mean, I'm sure that is in every press packet that Kochi hands out about how fantastic he is and how he should get more money to do what he's doing because he's providing this great service in the county and nobody's nobody's stopping him who's gonna the thing about the sheriffs is there's i mean there's there's nobody that they are accountable to right they can do whatever they want and no one actually says why is this your job why is law enforcement why do you need need this money it was this i don't know whether anybody followed it this commission on correctional spending the owners that spent two years, they kept extending it and extending so it to, and they were asking the sheriffs and the DOC for data so that they could be held accountable. And basically what turned out after two years of the sheriffs basically saying to them and the DOC saying, you know, go to hell, um, they got no data. And what no, they said was that they can't make any recommendations for what should happen because the only recommendation that they could so make mean. was that they needed more data. Oh my God. And so, I mean, in, what's the point? What is the point? In, in 2017, the Criminal Justice Reform Act was passed. In that part of that Criminal Justice Reform Act was asking sheriffs and the doc from for data and the do and the sheriffs and the doc back then said they never gave it to them and then they formed this commission and they didn't give it to them and so there is no there's no institution in the state that holds them accountable there's no institution in the state that makes what they're doing that demands transparency and yet they're getting you know all of this money doing whatever they do or don't do and and the legislature doesn't do anything eops doesn't do anything the governor doesn't do anything any governor not just this governor yeah it doesn't matter because we had deval patrick and he was awful absolutely And um, now he's like teaching accountability courses at Harvard or something. It's, I know, it's <laughs> ridiculous. That he- so, so Lois, I, I play a thought experiment um, uh, occasionally. I don't know if you remember the Maytag repairman who used to sit and look all sad and lonely because Maytag washing machines never broke. So he didn't I, need to I, do anything. I very well. Uh, well, the one thing that was unrealistic about that commercial is if Maytags truly didn't break, there wouldn't be such a job called Maytag repairman, right? You'd be out of work. Um, and so I always ask uh, as a thought experiment, what would happen if uh, nobody committed a crime for two years? <clears throat> what would happen to the sheriff's budgets? What would happen to the prison budgets? What would happen to the DAs? I mean, is this money just going to keep going uh, sort of off the edge of the conveyor belt and into the abyss yes um, because i mean if you think if you think that right now the jail and prison population is less than a half of what it was even 
Pete's rural staff. Seven or eight years ago. Right? And how has the budget reacted to that? The budget has increased. Hmm. So, uh, so there's no there's no relationship between the you know the number of people, the fewer number of people incarcerated that going down and the budget going up. I mean, it's inverse for what you would think. Now, I mean, sometimes I think, well, I mean, these jails, especially the ones that are out here, Berkshire, Hampshire, Franklin, um, you know, like, is anybody ever going to say to them, uh, you know, you need to consolidate or in, you know, and have, I mean, because they could put everybody in one of these jails. Yep. But and and lessen the amount of money. But for the reasons that we were just talking about, I was just talking about in the amount of people that are vested in maintaining the the money and the flow of money that they get from incarcerating people, all the people that work for them, the thousands and their whole families. All the people in those communities that, you know, a community that's filled with COs. Yep. Or COs and cops. You know, I mean, you know, when I go certain places, even around here, I'll drive through and I'll see, you know, support our or something Blue Lives Matter. And, you know, yep. house after house after house. So they're all living in certain communities. And so, I mean, not all, but I mean, there's a lot of that where, you know, there's like this critical mass. Yep. There's so many elements that, I mean, that are, I mean, like during the, the, the last uh, sheriff's election, when this guy Kochi ran, he was like, I mean, I literally have a picture of when he announced the picture. It looks like this thing out of uh, The Godfather, but literally kissing the, the, um, the lapel, the suit lapel of Ash the former sheriff who was like the Don of, of uh, Hamden County. And it's like, it's Ash, like, I mean, it's Kochi like bending over to like kiss his lapel. It's completely crazy. Oh my God. But, I mean, but this is actually the way it is. Yeah. So even though there were some pretty good candidates trying to run there, every single person and their families that maybe there are a couple that didn't because they didn't like Ash or didn't like Coach. All of those people that live in Hampton County voted for Kochi. You know, and I mean, and that's the way it cuts. So the, there's so many people that are tied into the um, maintaining this, these people the way they are, that they're the idea that even though it seems completely crazy that, you know, this amount of money could be spent here in Massachusetts, I mean, we could think of lots and lots of reasons, ways that it could be better spent. It, it doesn't matter because the the there's so many um, entangled constituencies that want to maintain things the way they are. And the only way to do it is through telling people, listen, this is what's going on here. This is what this is what you need to know. This is what you're paying for. I always say, you know, if you buy anything in Massachusetts, anything, and you pay state tax, you're paying for this. You know, you're paying for this. And, and you know, so that you're, you're culpable, you're responsible. It's your, it's your dollars, not just income tax, but anything you buy that has, that's taxed. Anything, gas. 
you know, is all of it is going to, to support this. And so, I mean, to me, the only way of, of starting to change it is, is by people's, I mean, one example that I'll give you is, so I'm here in Hampshire County, it's basically a white county, right? Like, it's not all progressive for sure. I mean, there's definitely, I've had some bad encounters with Trump people here um, and, you know, like surrounding communities. So there's definitely that. I mean, it's there's definitely that. But when, um, not this last election, but the election before, um, our state reps and our senators, our senator, uh, all left office at the same time. And so there was this opportunity for new people to run, which hadn't happened in, of course, a long time, given this being Massachusetts, nobody ever runs against anybody. And so um, so I called up these the rep, the woman who was running in, who I thought was a good candidate in, Ham, in my county in Hampton, and then the one in Amherst, and then our state senator who was running, Joe Comerford, who was running for the first time. And I, I said, can you meet with me? And I mean, they knew me or knew of me because of these letters to the editor and stuff. And, um, and so we started meeting. And also I started, you know, going around. I mean, I had been going around talking to all of these different groups about what was going on in Massachusetts and how it's not a progressive state and blah, blah, blah. And, and so now each of those three reps, one is my rep, Lindsay Sabadosa, one is the rep from Amherst, Mindy Dom, our state senator, Joe Comerford. Each one of those have gone into state prisons to see what is going on. They have all sponsored legislation, each one of them on parole, uh, Joe Comerford sponsored the moratorium on building a new j a jail for a new prison for women. That's her bill. Um, Lindsay Sabadosa has has written numbers of excellent bills. They haven't gotten out of a committee, but she is writing them. She is going into prisons. They are engaged with what's going on. Their constituents know what they're doing. They tell their constituents what they're doing and their constituents want to hear what they're doing about issues having to do with incarceration and the criminal legal system. And, and that's, you know, in a white community, in a white community in Western Massachusetts. Right. Because ultimately it doesn't matter what your skin color is. It matters what you do, right? I mean, well, I mean, it does matter what your skin color is because you get, you know, marked by the police and you get true. It matters in that sense. For yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, yeah. So it does matter. Um, but what I'm saying is, is that um, this can happen if people want to start doing it and they just have to do it. It has to happen in every district. Yep. And there has to be a sufficient pressure because I've tried uh, in my area in Middlesex um, with Jamie Eldridge, who is a you know, progressive, et cetera. But um, they're just, they get these bills passed, like that criminal reform bill in like 2018. That's that the one I was talking about. Yeah, the, the yeah. one that Jamie said was the most progressive ever and blah, 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 blah. 
they said it was the most progressive in a generation. And I said, that's because nothing had passed in a generation. And they keep calling it that. I mean, I mean, this thing that I mentioned about them asking in the CJRA, you know, for um, data from the sheriffs and the sheriffs and the DOC just blew them off. I mean, the same thing was all this stuff about solitary. There was stuff, not huge changes, but some changes in solitary. And they just blew it off. And so what did Eldridge have to do? He had to introduce in this last session, it's not going to pass, another, uh, like basically a, a fix, like a patch. Yeah. Criminal Justice Reform Act and solitary because the solitary, even though it was in there and everybody said, oh, this is fantastic and this is the best thing since sliced bread and all of that, it turned out to be that the DOC just said, you know, up yours. With you. And yeah. and the and the and the sheriffs just said, the hell with you, we're not doing this. We're yeah. just doing this and nobody came back at them so yeah a lot of these bills that are introduced in this session are an attempt to fix these things that this whole uh criminal uh correctional funding commission that turned out to be complete bull yeah they just spent money on it and and it was a total waste of time anything that doesn't come with real accountability it, it means nothing there's no point of even wasting your time supporting it and doing it because they, it, it will Why not go anywhere, and it will, like you said, be completely this. ignored. And and the whole thing, I mean, the whole commission was filled with correctional people. Right. I mean, sheriffs and ADAs, and I mean, Ash, they like dragged out, you know, to be in there. I mean, it's like the, there was almost nobody on there that wasn't like 100% in some way correctional. And so what, I mean... Um, Brownsburger was on it, you know, supposedly. It's fantastic. So, so Lois, what would it take, do you think, um, uh, to get movement in the right direction? I mean, obviously, people like you um, can can do uh, um, work tirelessly, but that's, you know, hard to, 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 to coerce people to do that. Um, Jamie and I are trying to raise awareness. Uh, you know, that's sort of mixed bag. Um, what what that does? What do you think it will take? And are we really talking sort of grassroots? Is that the the the, the umbrella term that uh, uh, that uh, has to be applied here? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in Massachusetts, is I mean, compared to like, so I do a lot of work to try to end the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. I know many, many, many lifers here in Massachusetts and around the country, some of them very good friends of mine for many years. And I want to see that sentence end everywhere. And so I want to see it here and here in Massachusetts. In other states that are working to end life without the possibility yes. of parole that, uh, so like Pennsylvania, New York, Illinois, California, especially those states, those places that I work with people in each of those states. The way they've gone about doing this is by building a grassroots movement. And, um, and then when they have enough political pressure, binding legislator or legislators that will um, sponsor a bill. Here, in Massachusetts, it's been backwards, even though I've said a million times, we can't, we're not going to get anywhere doing it this way. A bill gets introduced. 
and everybody, you know, tries to get their people to support the bill. And then the bill doesn't get out of committee. That just happened now again. And so, uh, and so I was just writing to someone actually who is a lifer in Massachusetts, who I would say is part of the old guard. <laughs> I mean, he's not a guard, he's a lifer, but part of the old guard in Norfolk. And, uh, and he, we were writing, I was writing to him about, you know, the lifer bill. He's 80. And so, um, and he said, well, I guess we'll have to wait till next term, you know, the next session again. And I was like, for the 400th time I wrote to him and I said, no, if we do that, we're gonna be screwed again. Right. That's just never the way it's gonna happen. I mean, there is never a time, I mean, I've talked to you about it in this, you know, interview, there's never a time, a class, or anything that I talk with that I don't talk about life without parole and ending life without parole. Um, and so to me, I mean, that's, I mean, it's really key. And the only way to keep doing that for me is to find as many opportunities as we can um, to talk about that. And, you know, like these three people that are the two reps around here and the senator, they all signed on to the bill. And Joe Comerford last year, when she had first been elected, she signed on to it. And somebody, there had been a very terrible murder up in Franklin County, which is part of her district. And when she signed on to it, she got a lot. I mean, the family members showed up at every event that she was at and picketing. And I mean, she got a lot of pushback. And I have to hand it to her that this year she signed on to it again. You wow. know, I mean, I thought she might not because of how much she got back. I mean, she was a new senator. And um, but she did. And no. I did because she heard from people that they you know, we, I got a bunch of people. I mean, I send out emails all the time to people around here about bills and about legislation and calling your rep all the time. Yep. And so I, I think, you know, I mean, it's not, it's, we're talking about like moving a mountain. Yeah. You know, I mean, moving a mountain. I mean, it's a relatively new mountain if you think that, you know, I mean, if you think like in 1970, there were 200,000 people total incarcerated, and now they're 2.1 million. So this is a mountain that is ahistorical in terms of, you know, U.S. history of incarceration. So it's, I mean, I mean, it's 50 years, so I'm going to be 75. So 50 years <laughs> to me, it's like, you know, not... Not way, way back. Like I remember 50 years ago really well. Yeah. Well, it, it, and the last time I checked, the national statistics are it's about 0.7% of the U.S. population is in prison. That uh, probably doesn't count jails. Does it? Oh, doesn't count jails. Yeah. Okay. So it's much higher, but even 0.7, you know, being almost 1% is, is sort of concerningly high. I mean, if you think about yeah. your... You're at Fenway Park, which let's say holds forty thousand people. Uh, you know, one percent 
uh, of of uh, forty thousand is what four hundred. Yeah. And so there's four hundred people who are not there, can't be at the game with you because they're, uh, um, you know, that would be like a, a whole section of the bleachers that's not there in spirit. Um, and I think people don't really seem troubled by that. And uh, and and it's interesting. You mentioned the '70s. One of the themes of our podcast is that something changed in the '70s. Um, I, I mean, things have been changing throughout, but in particular in the '70s, we had. Richard Nixon as president, and he, uh, 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 I think, uh, carefully identified one lever he could pull to sim simultaneously destabilize the African-American community and the hippie communities, and that was the war on drugs. And that really escalated the war on drugs, and you use the word decimated, and I think that war has, has succeeded in its goal, which is to destroy communities, uh, destroy lives, and to sort of increase the slope of incarceration in a way that uh, is, if you look at it graphically, is, is alarming. It's, it's, it's a, I think if at, at a minimum, it's a poor referendum on what Americans think of themselves. We think that we must think of ourselves as either a lawless nation, in which case the line is going to at some point approach 100%, right? That line is growing without uh, 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 any decline. Well, it's kind um, of even that, actually. But anyway, yeah. Yeah, but that's the, the that was certainly the slope throughout the 70s, 80s, 90s. And is that where we were headed? Were the goal yeah. of 100% incarceration? Or is there some exit I mean, if strategy you here? Number increasing by 2 million people incarcerated. I mean, at any given point, that's not all of the people in each year that cycle through being right. incarcerated that's at that given that's that point in time that's not all the people that were incarcerated in 2021 and 2020 right. that have the legacy of that the legacy of it of being on parole the legacy of it of being on probation the legacy of it of not being able to get a job because of their quarry all the all of those legacies right i mean that 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 I mean, it's of course we know, we know, we know it's disproportionately impacting communities of color, black people, and 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 brown people. That's where it's fallen. And so the the thing that is so important to me is to talk to people who are white people mm -hmm. who are culpable in all of these ways by giving themselves a pass, by paying for it, by not finding out, by finding out and not doing anything about it. All of that, that that's what it's gonna take. Because the people, I mean, the people who are on the receiving end, I mean, I think this was especially true, like in the 80s and 90s, like during the height of the war on drugs. Hey, Lori? The people who were, you know, having all their family members like did snatched you, up and thrown in jail and thrown in jail in prison for really, really okay. long periods of time because of mandatory minimums. Those communities were not in a position to fight back because they were just trying to survive. Mm. Right. Just trying to survive. And I think that's still true. I mean, so that those communities, those black communities, those brown communities, not just here in Boston and wherever Springfield, I mean, they are still feeling it. Their family members are still locked up. And the family members that have gotten out who've been in prison for 10 years or 20 years are not mostly in good shape. You know, when they come out, I mean, there was this uh, statistic that we found out, so here's all this money going to the DOC, right? 
and there are let me find the exact number so in, on, on december 15 2021 in the department of corrections there were fourth out of about six thousand people there were four thousand sixty five people on a waiting list to get aba adult basic education waiting list a waiting list <laughs> So here are people sitting in prison that don't have a GED or, you know, the GED equivalent. And are there 4,000 of them on a waiting list trying to get that? So what kind of shape did they go in with? What kind of learning disabilities? What kind of drug issues? What kind of everything that never got addressed the whole time that they're sitting there and we're spending this money? Right. And then they leave. And then, you know, what, what happens to them? You know, do they get a job when they come? Like what's how, what's the realistic re-entry for these guys? They expect them to get a job and have an apartment. Guys and gals. Yeah. Guys and gals. And, and and they expect these people to have like, to get an apartment right away. They expect them to get a job right away. And that just doesn't happen. That's impossible. And how how can it happen given what happens to them when they're locked up? Right. Yeah, I, I had a, uh, Lois, I represented a person who was one of the state drug lab victim, true victims. Uh, he was factually innocent, but uh, uh, was convicted after a jury trial of uh, alleged of possessing cocaine, which it was actually uh, uh, not cocaine. Uh, and he uh, went into prison, uh, uh, came out, and not only couldn't qualify for subsidized housing, but uh, uh, when he when he had his conviction overturned, I as his lawyer had to try to convince bureaucrats at these different organizations that that conviction, the thing you're disqualifying him for housing, was overturned, and they didn't even understand what that meant. They didn't understand that 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 this is an innocent person that you're denying housing because he has a conviction on his record. That's a false conviction. A false conviction and. Uh, and, and I think, and then the, the the virtual impossibility of getting a job, um, certainly a, a job that anybody would, in 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 their right mind, would 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 be satisfied with, is I think uh, uh, underappreciated. Um, and I think your point, which I I uh, uh, I will confess, I did not appreciate until today, that life without parole means that we're sort of stockpiling. Um, uh, uh, human lives and souls in, in, in a dusty attic, um, well beyond, I'm guessing, the, the, any danger that any of these people could pose to society and any claim that they did not, you know, serve their time uh, for the crime. Uh, I think that was uh, pretty eye-opening. So I, I thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, I have a friend who's at no in the like hospital unit who if no one, has if ALS. No one does what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Is He's a lifer. Help them do what he can't move his legs. He can't move his arms anymore. He was an incredible writer, and he was the head of the debate team there at Norfolk, a coach. And so he's sitting there. He's applied for compassionate release four times and be turned down by the head of the DOC. So, I mean, this is a whole other issue about parole and compassionate release here. Yeah. That, that one incident back where the guy was a former incarcerated person that robbed that jewelry store and shot someone, like ever since then, it's just been shut off. 
It's it's crazy. And that was that was Sinelli, and that was Deval Patrick. Yep. Fired the whole parole board, and um, right after that happened, and and the people that he put in his place. I mean, some of them are still there, and some of them aren't still there. But it's a hundred percent. I mean, maybe I think there's one person on it that isn't a hundred hundred that isn't a correctional person. Mm-hmm. That's who we have as our parole board now. Right. A parole board that basically when people come before them, it's like, I mean, even these two guys that got commuted, you know, who had like thousands of people behind them, uh, William Allen, Kuntz, I mean, they had they had this huge, I mean, they had everybody behind them. And when they went in front of the parole board, they retried them, basically. Except for instead of a jury of your peers, it's former corrections officers. (laughs) I mean, mean, amazingly, I mean, they were, they finally were uh, commuted, but I was just uh, looking at this. uh, So that was, so their sentence was just commuted. I mean, it was this huge campaign to commute them. And uh, the time before that, when a prisoner sentence was commuted, was in 2014. And that was the first commutation in 17 years. Since 2000, 769 prisoners have petitioned for commutations and have gone unheard. Unbelievable. I I mean, this is something, this is another one of these things that is, uh, peculiar to Massachusetts, where the governors basically have just stopped commuting people. I mean, Baker did this last time, but I mean, he got a lot, lot, lot of pressure. I mean, a lot. And of course, he's leaving office. Yeah, so but, I mean, that's what it is. It's political butt coverage because they don't want someone to reoffend. And then like they don't want to get Willie Horton, essentially. Right. Like that's that's what everyone yeah, I mean, hears. That's, to me, that is the most. I mean, there are so many people that are second degree lifers that have been paroled you know, after 15 years or 20 years or 25 years. And and the uh, the percent of people that have been um, not put back in prison for a, 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 a violation, like let's say some PO decides that they shouldn't be on the street talking to somebody else with a criminal conviction, which is a reason to put, you know, to violate somebody, but for another crime is infinitesimal infinitesimal it's like one percent it's maybe not even one percent so this whole idea about you know this willie horton ball you know mm-hmm. is 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 just that it's something that people can use that don't want to see the system change right. and use that as the rationale or, or this guy sinelli i mean he had been out the one that got killed somebody it was a like a robbery or something he yeah. he's been on parole for years so he had been doing whatever he had been doing. But I mean, this was the one time that he did, I mean, unfortunately kill somebody. But I mean, but he was, I mean, he was one. Willie Horton was one. Yeah, I know. And that was 30 years ago, 40, almost, you know, I mean, yeah. anyways. But I mean, yes, it's still used as the rationale or the yep. cover that people can stand behind not to do anything. And Absolutely. so it's up to us to make sure that we don't give people that cover. Agreed. Okay, Lois, thank you um, for coming on today. Uh, it has been a great pleasure. I think we've learned a lot um, about incarceration in Massachusetts and also 
the real cost of prisons. So um, again, you want to give another plug for your website? Yeah, it's realcostofprisons.org. And the other plug I want to give is the Facebook page, which is also Real Cost of Prisons. <laughs> and um, there are about 30,000 people on that page. And um, I post things about the criminal legal system, what's happening here in Massachusetts, what's happening around the country um, every day. And so it's a public page. People can just like it and then see what I post. Absolutely. And, and I will just say, Lo Lois, thank you uh, for coming on with us. And uh, I think pointing the way to uh, uh, what will take uh, a lot of grassroots effort and civic engagement um, yeah. uh, for no other reason than the, the status quo is probably the best grassroots organizer there is with substantial voting blocks and the ability to get the message out and, and, and amplified uh, and, and repeated so that the public uh, believes in uh, uh, that there's no option but to give in to fear. Uh, and I think that uh, if, if everybody uh, comes to their senses and realizes they can do their own small part, uh, maybe things can turn around. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lois. Thank you. Bye.